recognize with me this morning that we are entrusting our children to Mr. Maisie, Mr. Becker, and Mr. Miley. <clears throat> we have reason to pray as well. I'm just kidding. They're going to have a great time. Kids, you are dismissed. They're going to have an awesome time down with, with the fellas this morning. Good morning. Do you guys have a good Thanksgiving or what? I am heavier this morning than I was <clears throat> a couple of days ago, um, which for my height to weight ratio is pretty remarkable. <laughs> so I am uh, looking to the future for some self-control and, <laughs> and hopefully uh, after Christmas. All right, after Christmas. That's right. I start every Monday. Um, a little feedback, sorry. We are uh, we're going to continue our series in Romans this morning. And uh, as we approach the word this morning, I hope with me that you see incredible reason to worship. There was a theologian, modern theologian, who teaches out on the West Coast and actually Vancouver, British Columbia, named Gordon Fee, who, I don't know if he coined this phrase, but he seems to be most famous for saying it. Um, but he said, good theology leads to more doxology. And what that means is the more we know about who God is and what he's done for us, the more reason we have to worship, amen, that our affections would be drawn more to God the more we know about who he is and what he's done as he's revealed it to us in his word. And uh, I, I believe this morning is great opportunity for that as we come to the word. So let's read it together and then we will pray and jump into this. We have been walking through Romans. There is no greater letter to walk through in scripture, all scriptures breathed and inspired and good for us, and Romans in particular seems to be one of those uh, one of those letters in in the epistles that that just is so rich and is so good. And uh, so let's read it together. We are today in Romans chapter four, and we're going to read verses thirteen to twenty five to the end of the chapter, and that is going to for now as we head into the Advent season, going to con conclude our, our series on Romans until we jump back into it later on in the year or next year. So uh, Romans 4, verses 13 through 25, let's read it together, and then we will do our best with God's help to, to unpack it. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your promise. We thank you that you do what you say you're going to do. We thank you for your incredible gift of faith. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your guarantee. We rely completely on you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. So as a prosecutor, which happens to be my vocation, I bear in a criminal case the burden of proof. Um, My argument bears the burden of proof, and that burden never shifts in a criminal case. So as we all know, under our Constitution and our law, that anytime someone is accused of a crime, the government brings an accusation against someone that says you've committed a crime, they all have a right to what? You've seen on every cop show. Remain silent, right? You, You get a right to an attorney. You don't have to say or do anything. You have a right to look back at the government, usually the state, and say, prove it. You're accusing me of something. You're pointing the finger at me. Prove it. That's true for a traffic ticket all the way to, you know, a homicide, the worst crimes on our books. Um, That's why when the police officer approaches your window, he says, do you know how fast you're going? You know why he says that? He wants you to confess, right? And some of you go, yeah, I was doing about 80, 85, and that goes right in the the deposition. Um, There's your confession. When he says, you know how fast you're going, the, 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 the good legal answer is, What's important, officers, do you know how fast I was going? (laughs) Don't do that. So we bear the burden of proof as the state. My my boss is the elected DA in this county. There's 62 DAs in New York, 62 counties. And our job is to to argue. And the thrust of our argument, as we always say as prosecutors, we can never have too much evidence. We can never have too much of an argument. And, and as we go into, into situations where we're at trial, and obviously the defendant is innocent until proven guilty, it's our job to prove guilty. We have to call witnesses, produce evidence, and have an argument that proves beyond a reasonable doubt every element of the crime that we've charged somebody with. And so as I talk to my prosecutors that I supervise, I say, listen, you, you, you need to organize your trial to to produce evidence that tells the story of what we know happened because the evidence tells us what happened. And as you prepare your closing arguments, the thrust of your argument 
is to basically bury the, the opposing view under the weight of your argument so that there's no reasonable doubt that that's exactly what happened. There's no doubt with a reason. You know, you know, you can always come up with something fanciful or crazy, but there's no doubt with a reason that this is exactly what happened because it's what the proof tells us. And we see here Paul really making an argument. You've heard the phrase, you know, when the horse is dead, dismount. Um, Paul is beating the horse here. He, he is making this argument that he has been making uh, all the way through chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4. And, and what he's done here is he's laid out this argument, and some would say, gosh, are we still talking about the same thing? But as we look throughout church history, and we talk about the argument that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone, the argument maybe wasn't made enough, right, as we look throughout church history. But Paul hammers it home here at the end of chapter 4. We've looked at uh, chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, and we've, uh, throughout the end of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, we've seen our desperate state. We have learned from Paul our sinful state. The idea in chapter 3 that none of us is good, no, not one, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that there is a particular standard that none of us can live up to. And we've seen by the end of that uh, chapter, this idea that we, in and of ourselves, cannot save ourselves. We cannot produce enough effort. We are utterly sinful. We are utterly desperate. We are utterly in need of salvation. And without our understanding of that need, there's really no reason to even talk about the answer or the solution. And so now what we've seen through chapter 3 and chapter 4 is the solution. How does God uh, solve this problem for us because we can't solve it on our own. And he's continuing this argument. And as he's talking to, to Jews and Greeks alike, he brings into the argument, as Bernie talked about last week, the greatest example um, in the mind of a Jewish uh, person of, of, of who, who would be the example of someone who lives up to God's standard. And in their minds, it would be their father Abraham. And what Paul's argument is to the Jews and to the Greeks is that, that Abraham is the father of all of us, Jews and Greeks, and it has nothing to do with Abraham's efforts, and it has nothing to do with Abraham's um, ability to somehow live up to a standard, but it has to do with faith. And that's what we talked about last week. Abraham believed God. His faith. And so Paul continues this argument for us this morning, and this is good, good news. Let's look at it together. In verse 13, we see Paul hammering this argument home. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents to the law who are the, to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul, continuing his argument, talks about Abraham and that he had been promised as he was taken outside the tent and, and looked up to the stars that, that you would be, you would be uh, father to, to as many descendants as there are, you can see stars in the sky. And here we see Abraham 
it, it pushing 100 years old, and Sarah, whose womb was barren, and God makes this promise to him, and he believed God. And Paul is relating this faith to our faith, as we see at the end of this passage. And, and he says that it is, it's through faith, the righteousness of faith. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, Paul had said earlier. And he says again for us that it's not about adhering to the law to be this error, because if it was about living up to the law, our faith is meaningless. Our faith is null and it's void. It's empty. It's worthless. This is a, this is a concept that is, is revolutionary. This is an idea that, that is so transformative. And there's so many believers, so many people that, that go to church every day, I should say, that don't see this in the scriptures and are running this rat race of trying to earn favor with God and live up to the standard of God in and of themselves. And Paul comes right at the argument and he says, listen, you can't live up to it, right? If you could earn it through adherence to the law, then your faith is worthless. It's meaningless. It's void. And then he goes on to say, the only thing you can earn, the only thing you and I are capable of earning in our effort is wrath. The only thing we can earn is wrath. And our effort and our desire to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it ourselves and somehow earn it, we are able to accomplish what? Just wrath from God because of our sin. We are incapable of doing it on our own. What an incredible statement. He ends this little part of the passage by saying, where there is no law, there is no transgression. What an incredible thing to say. Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky, close enough. He wrote a book struggling with not the existence of God, but the creation of God and human suffering. And in his struggle, he, he coined this famous, famous quote, there is no God, everything's permitted. If there is no God, everything's permissible. What we see here is Paul says, if there is no standard, if there's no law, there's no transgression, right? And so if there's, you know, and you see common in, in, the, naturalist, in the naturalistic view of our society today, that, that if there is no God, if all that we have is what we see naturally, and, and if everything in existence, and, and we can discover everything through naturalism and what's here, and all there is, is what's here on this planet, on this piece of dirt flying through space, and there is no God, there is nothing beyond us, above us, that produces some kind of standard on how we are to live in relationship to each other, then, then everything's permitted, Right? And we see in our lawless society, not just that everything is permissible, but what we see in the lawlessness of today's culture is that even to have a standard, even for God to, to have a law or for God to have a standard is somehow below the dignity of his love, right? Is that not how people think today? How could a loving God hold anyone accountable for anything at any time? In fact, in a day of radical individualism that is the natural progression of humanism and naturalism, um, 
what I feel about myself in my own law, almost a manual Kant, uh, like I create my own morality, uh, whatever I feel about myself is, is reigning law in the standard. It's whatever I want to do. I'm my own God. Dostoevsky called it the superman. If there is no God, everything is permitted. In this superman, as I look to someone who's weaker than me, why could I not kill that person? Why could I not do what I want, perpetrate upon them anything that I want? Because really it's survival of the fittest. Whatever I want to do, I get to do. Is that not where we've headed in our lawlessness? A loving God. How could a loving God not have a standard? You know, what's interesting is the person who, who has these words come from their lips that I, I'm radically individualistic, I get to do whatever I want to do, feel whatever I want to feel, be whatever I want to be, is the first person when cut off on the highway who begins to shout all sorts of words and give sign language and think to themselves, if there was only a police officer who had lights and sirens that could pull that person over and hold them accountable for cutting me off, right? No one really truly believes in lawlessness. They believe in lawlessness when it comes to them being held up accountable for the things that they want to do, but when someone perpetrates something upon them, they want them held accountable, do they not? Someone hurts me, someone steals from me, someone does something against me. I'm very passionate about that. We see that a loving God, of course, has a standard. A loving God, of course, has a moral law. As we saw in Romans chapter 1, we naturally know it. We naturally see it. It's just evident as we look around nature that there is a moral law. There's a reason why everyone in every civilization throughout human history knows it's wrong to murder and it's wrong to rape and it's wrong to do, to take from someone that's not theirs. There is something beyond us, something bigger than us. There is a moral standard of how we are to relate to each other because there is a God who has created us and who loves us and who knows knows how we are to best live amongst each other and live in relationship to him. Is there not? It's obvious. It's clear. And only a loving God would have that kind of a loving moral standard. But what we see in Romans and what we see naturally is sins enter the world. And what we see here is there is a law. And, and that's the reason why we know things are wrong. If there was no law, we wouldn't know. But because of the law of God, we recognize that we're bent, that we're crooked. As we've said before, when a contractor drops a plumb line next to the wall, he can see the wall's crooked because the plumb line is straight. Otherwise, he wouldn't see it. And we see that the law demonstrates to us clearly that we fall short, that we do transgress, that when it comes to the law of God, every one of us is found wanting. And we've sinned. And we can't make it right in and of ourselves, in and of our own effort. And those who would try to, according to Paul in chapter 4 here, who would try to do it through effort, who would try to do it through living up to the law, then, then your faith is worthless. Then you are only going to earn for yourself wrath. So what do we do? What's the answer? Paul says at the end, in verse 15, for the law brings wrath. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Look at verse 16. This is a glorious, glorious verse. That is why it depends on faith 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. Folks, this is good news. It's got to be faith because it's got to rely on his grace because it, when it relies on his grace, it's guaranteed. Amen? Can you imagine this morning if your salvation depended on you? Can you imagine this morning if, if the key for you to, to receive the promise from God would be you? If it depended on you and your efforts and your abilities, my ability, I fail every second, I fail every minute, I fall short every moment, and so it has to be faith. It has to be not just believing in God, but believing God so that it relies on his grace, and he does it, and when he does it, it's what? It's guaranteed. Amen? Is this not good news? It is guaranteed. Because God does what he says he's going to do. You can count on him and you can rely on him. Amen? And this is Paul's argument. This is the thrust of his closing arguments in relationship to what? Justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Abraham's an example of this for us that Paul uses in this argument. Faith is the reason that the promise can rest on grace so the promise may be sure. The promise may be sure. And we, and we see this idea of faith. And as Paul addresses it here, I think um, we need to check ourselves in relationship to what this gift of faith in our lives really is. Abraham didn't just believe in God. And I think we need, to, we need to distinguish a belief in God from the kind of faith that Paul's talking about here. Satan believes in God. The Bible says the demons know God. They believe in him. They, in the same way that, that evidence throughout history has suggested to us that George Washington was the first president of the United States, right? I believe in the fact that George Washington was our first president. Evidence throughout history has dictated through documents and through, through what we can see that George Washington was, in fact, the first president of the United States. I believe in that, but I'm not relying on George Washington for anything. And, and, and this idea that there's an intellectual assent to the fact that, that in God, there's an intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus came and died and forgave and rose from the dead. The, the fact that I believe in God or his existence is not the kind of faith that Paul's talking about. Abraham didn't just believe in God. Abraham, as we see here, believed God for life, for death. He relied upon God. I mean, I think the clearest picture, I know I've said this before to you, one of the clearest visual pictures of this for me is to look out at all of you and see you sitting on a chair. The entire weight of your body is believing in the fact that that chair is going to hold you up. You have rested your entire physical self on the chair. If the legs give out, what's going to happen? Nothing cheers my wife up more than me falling. 
It's just a remarkable thing that she has. When I fall and hurt myself, she laughs. If, it's, if I slip on the ice, if I, if I fall out of my chair, if I hit some, if I hit my head, it's immediate gratification for her. It's, it's remarkable. It really is. And she tries so hard to ask if I'm okay first, but she usually can't. She's usually just laughing so hard. <clears throat> reliance, complete reliance. Abraham, Abraham relied with his, his entire being, life, death, faith. His, his reliance was upon Christ, was upon God. Faith isn't just believing in God, it's believing God. He believed God. It was more than just an intellectual assent. Abraham believed God for life, for death. Think about it, he was 100 years old. He was pushing 100 years old. And, and his wife of not too dissimilar age who had been barren for him, her entire life. And, and God made a promise to him, and Abraham believed it. God said, she's going to bear with you a son. You are going to be a father to many nations. And it's not going to be from the kid you had with the maidservant. It's going to be from, from a child with your wife, Sarah, who's been barren. And at your age, that is going to happen. And Abraham, he didn't just believe in God like intellectual assent. He believed God. He relied upon it with his life. And what, what Paul is doing here is he's saying in the same way that Abraham believed God for life and for death and for, for the promise that God had made to him, what he's saying to you as you look down in the passage here is that you too, with that faith, can believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead for his promise of salvation for you. Amen? You can't earn that salvation. You can't work for that salvation. You can't be good enough for that salvation. But when you, in the gift of faith, Rely on God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, to save you from your sin. He will be good to his promises. Amen? This is good news. Those of us who are under the weight of sin, none of us who have done good, no, not one, can rely upon God for salvation because of Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Abraham believed God. He had a personal trust and a reliance on God for his promises. You know, when we violate this standard of God, when we recognize there is a law, there is a standard, so there is transgression, it's not some abstract thing, is it? I think some, sometimes in the church, as we talk about the grace of God, as we talk about our faith and our reliance upon it, sometimes we, we the idea of transgressing um, in our minds somehow becomes less than. But our transgressions and our sin is very personal. It's not abstract. As we come to rely on God, as we come to exercise this faith that rests on the grace of God that is guaranteed in the work of Christ through God, then, then our transgressions and our sin um, becomes something that is very personal to the God who created us and the God who saved us. What we see about our faith as we look at James and as we look at Hebrews is that the kind of faith that completely relies on God, that rests their life in the hands of a God who is gracious to us and who guarantees his promises, that kind of faith can't help but produce in us 
a, a, a work and a change in our life. Amen? It can't help but do it. It, it, to the degree that the Bible becomes clear when it says that, that you will know someone has that kind of faith because it will be shown in their works. If that faith truly exists, if that seed of faith truly exists in the life of a human being, there will be evidence that the faith exists, and that evidence is a life of worship, a life that begins to worship God with the way that it lives. Amen? Does that make sense? And I think it's important for us to not get this in the wrong order. And that's the thrust of Paul's argument. So many of us that have grown up in the Northeast, uh, Italians and Irish and, and, and many of us who come from the type of people that have settled in this area have a long history in the church of, of Catholicism and have a long history maybe in this area of, of even hearing sometimes from evangelicals or Protestants that, that there is an effort you produce that earns the love and the grace of God, right? And it's completely backwards. What Paul says here is the only thing you can earn is wrath. But if you have this gift of faith that relies on God and his grace and his guarantee, it will produce in you a response in your life because why? Because you're living a life that's grateful for what God's already accomplished and done. You're not living a life trying to earn brownie points with God and to get him to love you. Do you understand the importance of the order? We, we slip into this all the time. Man, if I, if I wake up in the morning, and man, I just get up. I don't, I don't lay in bed too long. And I get my cup of coffee, and I pray I have a good prayer time and I read my Bible and I go to work. Man, God really loves me today. And those mornings where I just keep hitting snooze on my cell phone and before I know it, I'm like, oh. And I get up and I rush and I, and I, and I just don't have time to do that stuff and I get dressed and I'm in the car and yelling at the kids and trying to get them out the door and I'm rushing to work. Somehow my perception is that, oh man, I've really disappointed. God, does not, God doesn't care for me the same way today. And what we see declared in the promises of God is that his agape love for you is not based on your performance. His love for you is based on his work in Christ. And as you rely on that work, his promise is guaranteed. Amen? You are, if you're sitting here this morning and you're questioning God's love for you because subjectively things are going awry and you feel that way, look outside of your subjective feelings at the objective truth of the cross of Jesus Christ, that he has made a way for you, that he loves you, that you don't have to earn it because you can't. He's done it for you, amen? And recognize the love of a God who is righteous and has a perfect law and has made a way for sinful people to be justified. There's no better news than this. Faith alone, because it relies on grace alone, because of Christ alone. Ask yourself this morning, are you still trying to work your way to heaven? Be a little introspective about that. Are you still trying to work your way to heaven? Paul's very clear. 
that if it's through adherence to the law, you're only going to work your way to wrath. Ask yourself today, am I relying on God for everything? For life, for death, for my salvation? I've been, uh, I've been around, particularly my vocation, but just in life, I guess at 41, a lot of death. And it always brings this to the forefront of people's minds, does it not? Sitting in a funeral, and someone you know, someone you love, has passed. And the questions start to come. The, 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 the just not knowing begins to rise to the forefront of people's brains. And what we see here, and what I see it, it, when I sit at the funeral of someone who I know is relying on Christ, what I see here is assurance. What I see here is that word that I love in verse 16, guarantee. Is that not a good word? And I think some of us would think, well, is it, is it arrogant to be sure of one's salvation? Is it arrogant to think that I know that I know that I know that I'm going to go to heaven, that God is going to make good on his promises? And the answer to that question in light of this passage is a resounding no. It's not arrogant to have assurance because your assurance isn't in yourself. Your assurance isn't in your ability. Your assurance is in the most, most trustworthy thing there could be, God himself. Your assurance is in God. Your reliance is on God. And what the passage says here today, if you are relying in faith, it, that promise is resting on his grace, his unmerited favor towards you, and it is guaranteed. Amen? It's not arrogant to be sure. And we can be assured this morning as we rely on him. This is not some leap of faith. You would think that, okay, for Abraham to believe at 100 years old with his wife who's been barren, that, that it's this leap of faith to believe she would have a child. And what Paul says here is it's not a leap of faith. And in the same way you and I would rely upon God, Christ's sacrifice, his death, and as we see at the end of this passage, his resurrection, the fact that we would rely on that, is that some kind of leap of faith? And, 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 and what Paul says here is absolutely not. It is not a leap of faith. Folks, you are resting in, you are relying upon the God of the universe who made you and loves you and who died for you. It is the most trustworthy thing you can rest the weight of your life upon. What else are you relying on in life for salvation? What else are you relying upon in life for, for, to, to, to somehow be right with God? To, to, to recognize you're wanting in relationship to his law and somehow at the end of days you're going you're gonna to be able to have a relationship with him and, 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 and be welcomed by him. What are you relying upon to, to make up the gap between your life and the standard of God? The only trustworthy thing, the only thing you can rely upon is him, is God himself and his answer to this problem. And that's what Paul is saying here. 
relying upon him in the same way that, that Abraham believed that God would be good to his promise. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Listen to this, verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Amen? Are you fully convinced this morning that God is able to do what he's promised? Are you fully convinced this morning? This isn't a leap of faith. You're talking about the God who spoke into existence things from nothing. You're talking about the God that said light and there was light. You're talking about the God who, who speaks things that don't exist into existence. That's what Paul says here. Believing in that which is trustworthy. God who spoke life from death. The God that's able to do what he promised. Fully convinced. Listen to verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, this is great news here. Listen to this. But the words, it was counted to him. Or another translation would say imputed to him. Were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. Amen? It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our what? Justification. So Paul's saying, just like Abraham, just like Abraham at 100 years old with a barren wife walked around knowing in his knower, as my old pastor used to say. He knew it. He believed it. That he would be the father of many nations. That God would make good on his promises. That through Sarah he would have a son. In the same way those of us. And, and, and because of that belief, it was imputed to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. And in the same way, those of us who believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead, who believe in his way of salvation, that Jesus died for us, paid for our sin, and was raised from the dead, thereby justifying us, relying on God for us to walk in the courtroom of God and to have God look at us and say, not guilty because of Jesus. Those of us who are ungodly, Paul said, are justified because of Christ. Those of us who are relying on that with a faith whose life is completely, the weight of our lives are upon it, through his grace, through Christ alone, are declared justified, are declared not guilty based on our faith. Amen? He's the only one you can trust for salvation. As we live our lives, as we reflect on this, as we wake up in the morning and begin our to-do list, as our to-do list, day after day after day, becomes weeks, becomes months of, of effort 
and work and toil and goal setting and goal achieving as we walk through our lives to that moment where each one of us someday will stand before God and you won't stand there with your wife next to you or your husband next to you or your children with you or your parents with you as you stand before God alone if you are relying on Christ through a faith that just believes the grace of God is there for you and you will be declared not guilty. Not based on your work, not based on your toil, but based on the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. This is good news, amen? So let us, let us spend our days worshiping God with our lives because of what he has done. I read this week, David Cassidy died. The old Partridge family, the older brother. Some of you are nodding and some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? And it's completely based on age. I can see it as a... Bob could sing a Partridge family song for me right now. I know he could. He's... And I read something really interesting that his daughter wrote. His last words. His dying words, David Cassidy said to his daughter laying in a hospital bed, so much wasted time. Those were his last words. So much wasted time. And as I look at the word of God, And as I stood with you this morning, singing those songs and worshiping him for who he is and what he's done, I thought to myself, what else am I doing with my life than this right here? Worshiping and glorifying God for who he is and what he's done. We're not going to spend the rest of our days trying to earn his favor. He has given it to us. I want to spend the rest of my days relying on it, worshiping him for it living for him in a way that, that, that my affections in my life glorify his name because of who he is and what he's done. The only response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that he has died for us, he has forgiven us, he has raised from the dead and justified us, that, that there's nothing I could do that I could ever boast about to have earned my salvation. He completely did it 100% for me when I wasn't even looking for him. He has reached into my life and he saved me and justified me and declared me not guilty. And what we see here in scripture is that I can't earn it. I can just rely upon it and rest in it. But in that faith, what happens to my life is it it begins to produce works that just are uh, an evidence of the faith in my life that that I would live in a way that worships and glorifies him. I've never heard at the end of someone's days, last words that say, you know, I wish I watched more movies. I wish I, I just got in a few more Netflix shows. I, you know, generally people's words, as they reflect on the rest of their life, don't have, aren't, aren't filled with regret for not doing all the frivolous things that we fill our day with every, every, every day. That's why Paul says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. That's why we we see the body of Christ 
gathered together worshiping God and, and, and serving each other and serving others and giving our lives away. Because it's in response to this incredible gospel that he's done it all for us. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for a, the kind of effort that says, I did it better than you did. That all brings wrath. What we see is humble, grace-filled people who are responding to a gracious God who loved us, who served us in the most amazing way. Are we not? I can't help but look at the gospel as Paul has argued it here in Romans chapter 4 and feel the response for me to this passage is great affection and worship and a love for a God who did it when I absolutely just couldn't. Amen? So let's go from this place this morning asking ourselves a couple of questions. Am I still meaninglessly trying to earn it on my own? Or am I this morning relying on God, assured that he makes good on his promise? And then living a life that's grateful and worshiping to a God who will do what he said he's going to do. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this gift of faith that makes it about your grace and not about our work. We thank you for a law that shows us how crooked and bent we are and then for a loving God who comes and rescues us and saves us and pays the, the, the price of righteousness and our lack thereof, you paid the price so that we get the benefit of this alien righteousness, this righteousness that's not our own. You impute it to us. You give it to us as we rely on you, and we are grateful. Be glorified and worshiped in this place for years to come because of it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.